It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Aaron Keene tweeted, Every woman I know has been storing anger for years in her body, and it's starting to feel like bees are going to pour out of all of our mouths at the same time. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsu Politics. I'm feeling less hopeful and pragmatic, and I'm back to just full-on pissed off. How about you, Beth? I've already cried this morning to my husband about Brett Kavanaugh, so I think I'm in a good place. (laughs) Good place for anger. Good place for anger. Well, I was holding it together. I was feeling encouraged by the FBI investigation. But then many people, led by our president, decided the best bet is to openly mock Dr. Blasey Ford and... It's just been downhill ever since. It's been downhill ever since that moment. So I have some kind of rational, open-minded things to say, and then I have some not at all open-minded things to say. So I'm going to start with the calmer, 
type of behavior that people most often expect from me. That's good because the irrational one probably will fit more closely with what I'm going to say. So you start with the rational ones. Politico's playbook this week had a brief thought experiment about Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation and about how likely it is that if confirmed, Brett Kavanaugh will be a target for recusal motions throughout his time on the Supreme Court because Mm. of how partisan his remarks were in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. And I started thinking more about that and about what a material risk that is, especially Mm -hmm. since we now have the American Bar Association supportive of delaying the confirmation. We have 650 law professors writing to the New York Times about how his temperament in that hearing showed that he's unfit for the Supreme Court. And I started thinking, if I were arguing a case in the Supreme Court that involved either political party, I think I would have a legitimate argument for his recusal based not at all on the allegations of sexual assault, but solely on his words, unforced, the words he insisted were written by him and not influenced by anyone else. I think I'd have a good argument for his recusal. I think that if I were in a media case that involved Fox News, I would have a good argument for his recusal based on that interview Mm -hmm. he did with Martha McCallum. I think if I had any kind of case involving women's rights, I would be arguing for recusal based on the circus that has surrounded his confirmation. Now, I'm not saying that any of that is good and healthy. What I'm saying is if I'm on the side of believing that Brett Kavanaugh's position on the Supreme Court is somehow essential – I'm wondering if he's going to even get to vote in the cases that are most important to me. Mm -hmm. How does that play out if you have a justice who over and over is targeted like that? Because I think that's where we're headed. This has been so open in people's opposition to him, uncharacteristically so. It's a big deal for 650 law professors to sign Mm -hmm. a letter like that. Those are people who want their students to get clerkships in the Supreme Court. They're the kind of people who write amicus briefs trying to influence court Mm -hmm. decisions. This is a very insular world. For that many people to take that strong of a stand tells you that the Supreme Court is not going to be what it used to be, especially if Kavanaugh is confirmed. However you feel about the rest of this. That was... All true and very rational. So, yeah, I agree. I think that's a great point. Here's who I keep thinking about. I don't know how John Roberts lets this go forward because I don't agree with his jurisprudence, but I fully believe he is passionate about the future of the Supreme Court and feels like he is the guardian of the neutral nature of the Supreme Court and the history of the Supreme Court. How does that dude look at this and go, yeah, this will be fine? I can't, I don't, I don't understand where he's at on this. I don't know. I mean, maybe he, listen, maybe he's making calls behind the scene. We don't know. I don't know. And I can see him having a serious internal debate about whether he should even say anything because Mm -hmm. this is also unusual. You know, when Mitch McConnell was speaking about the FBI report and how they're going to follow the process from years ago, whatever, I thought follow the process has been rendered irrelevant because let's even set Merrick Garland aside even though Merrick Garland is what this is about for lots of people, right? Yep. There's, there is no setting Merrick Garland aside for lots of people, and I understand and respect that. But let's do it for a second. Let's put him on the shelf. If you believe that Democrats did not follow the process and how they handled these allegations, there's breakdown number one. Mm-hmm. Republicans' engagement of Rachel Mitchell in whatever role that was is breakdown number two. That's not a normal process. The issuance of this report from Rachel Mitchell 
is not a part of the process. So that's breakdown number three. His interview with Fox News. Yeah. Breakdown number four. The president weighing in. Breakdown Mm. number five. I mean, there is no follow the process anymore because we have been led, one could argue, by all sides. (laughs) I hate to do the all sides thing, but let's, let's be really fair about this. We have been led to a point in this particular circumstance where there is no routine process. There is no regular order surrounding Brett Kavanaugh. So how to treat an FBI supplemental background investigation that was conducted in, what, 72 hours when we have a public that only knows about that investigation what hasn't been done. That's all Mm -hmm. we know right now. Sitting here as we record, all we know is who wasn't spoken to. And you're going to keep that investigation confidential because that's the regular order? No, sir. We are in a different place. There is no regular order at this point. The regular order has absolutely broken down. But let's be real. The reason we feel like bees are buzzing out of our mouths is not because of the process. Am I right? That is true for me. Mm-hmm. Me too. So here's what sent me over the edge this morning as I started thinking about it, because I have been trying to see other perspectives. I have been very upset about this from the beginning. As everyone knows, I am still upset, livid, in fact, that our country has been put through this. Even if Brett Kavanaugh is the person he has told us all he is, he is not worth what is happening in America right now. And I'm mad about that. But where I really am upset today, and I'm just going to be honest, I'm very emotional about this. As I read about women being fearful for their sons, cool, be fearful for your sons. Let me talk to you then about my daughters. What am I supposed to tell my daughters? When you say we have a presumption of innocence in this country, what you mean is that I need to say, Jane and Ellen, if you are ever attacked, We are going to presume that the boy you said did it is innocent because that's what our system does, which means that we are going to presume that you are lying. I know that that sounds like we're presuming you're guilty, but that's what we're going to do. That's what we've decided. Even though we don't have to decide that outside the criminal context, we've decided that as a culture. So just know that if someone attacks you and you say something about it, you are going to be called a liar. And so all I know to tell you is don't get attacked. And I don't know how to really tell you to do that because statistically, you are most likely to be attacked by someone you know and probably trust. So you can't be alone with people. And you can't count on groups to protect you. And you can't know that if you're with two boys in a room, one of them won't attack you while the other one laughs. And maybe you could try to get your cell phone out while this happens. But if you do, then people are going to say, if you could get your phone, why couldn't you get away? Or why didn't you call for help? Or did you just do this to set them up? Your motives, Jane and Ellen, my precious daughters, are always going to be suspect. And your conduct is always going to be questioned because we are more comfortable with no one being accountable for your safety 
than with the idea that a boy could be lied about. And we are talking about this in America right now, like those two things are equal. Like my daughter being attacked is equally bad to your son being falsely accused of something. And I don't think that's true and I don't think it's right. And that's where I am admittedly dropping my capacity to have a rational discussion about this. So I will respect all of the concerns on the other side of this conversation, but I want my concerns heard too. And as I think about all of this, what really helps me get the bees like spinning is recognizing that this profound sense of despair that I feel when I think about Jane and Ellen, my seven and three-year-old, are how black mothers feel across this country. This is how the mothers of transgender children feel, how the mothers of gay and lesbian children feel. And it's just wrong, and I'm tired of it. And that doesn't mean that I am angry at all straight white men. I am not. But I am not okay with presuming every single time that they didn't do anything, when that means presuming that all of these people are lying every single time. It's just not okay. It seems to me that we are sort of uniquely qualified to have this conversation, seeing as how you have two little girls, and I have three precious little white boys whose souls I am in charge of shepherding through this incredibly f***ed up situation. And I am not going to tell them that their reputation is more important than someone else's soul. Because a false accusation damages your reputation. But a sexual assault or attack damages your soul. And not only because I see the difference, but hear me. The suicide rate of white males has increased 50%. So not only because I feel that's different, but because teaching white men this is damaging their souls. Teaching them that this is the only source of masculinity, that they are the most important people of the room, that they're in charge of everything, that power is the only source of their worth, is damaging to them. And so as the mother of three precious little white boys who I love, who occupy space in my heart, I'm not going to teach them that because I think it's hurting them. I don't look at Brett Kavanaugh testify and say, There is a person with a full and complete intact soul. And I'm not saying he's soulless. I'm just saying I don't look at people like Donald Trump mocking Christine Ford and think, man, that's what I want my boys to look like when they're in their 70s. That's how I want them to talk about people. That's my goal. I want them up there railing and screaming like Lindsey Graham. I don't care what positions of power they occupy. I don't want them talking about other people like that. That's my goal as a mother of three boys. I want them to come out intact. I want them to face our current culture of toxic masculinity and not be broken and damaged by it because that's what happens. That's my goal. And I think we really, really need to come to Jesus. And I'm talking in the criminal justice system and in our culture with exactly what you're talking about. Innocent until proven guilty doesn't work in this situation. And we're doing what we always do which is presume we only have two options and that the only other option is guilty until proven innocent. Stop. It's a false dichotomy. We're smart people. We have other options available to us. 
This is a complex situation in need of a more complex solution when we talk about sexual assault. But understand that our traditional mechanisms do not apply here. It uh-huh. feels so good to say, but we need the facts to come out. We need the evidence uh-huh. to come out. It's not available here. It's not. There is not going to be physical evidence. There are not going to be corroborating witnesses. It is a matter of credibility of the two people. And again, I am not advocating for everybody to go to jail or everyone's careers to be ruined or everyone's reputations to be ruined. I am just saying in the most basic terms, I am not comfortable with the assumption being that the victim is lying I am not comfortable with that. So we we need to do the work of finding another way. I don't know what that way is. I, I want the justice system to work well for everybody, including the people who are accused. I want to be fair to Brett Kavanaugh in this process. And I'll tell you, the way the process is being conducted right now is especially unfair to him if he did not do this, because he is going to go on to that Supreme Court with a cloud over him that is irremovable especially because the FBI investigation wrapped up so quickly, especially if there isn't transparency around that report. That's not fair to him either. We can do better than this for everybody, but I want better for women too. Because here's what I refuse to accept. I refuse to accept that because the traditional processes aren't available to us because we can't assess cold, hard facts, that justice is not available to us. I refuse to accept that. I refuse to accept that the status quo that has existed for hundreds of years with regards to sexual assault is the best we can do. I refuse to accept that on behalf of your daughters and behalf of my sons, that is not acceptable. We are all going to have to try harder. Before we share our interview with Sarah Riggs Amico, we had a little bit that we wanted to reflect on based on the New York Times in-depth reporting. In-depth seems like an inappropriate adjective, like it's not quite enough. This is really significant reporting about how President Trump came to be wealthy, about how the Trump family approached the United States government in terms of taxation, and how the president has characterized himself as a self-made person. Which is a lie. Surprise. Um, So long story short... They were using their children um, as tax shelters, and he's had hundreds of millions of dollars in fortune from the very beginning. So this self-made idea is a complete and total fabrication, and that's the long and short of it. It is very significant, and I was thinking, we were talking beforehand, and um, I talked about this a little bit on the Nightly Nuance, that it feels like, oh, it's just another blip, and he's lied about so much. What's the impact? But here's what I think we should stop and think about. Let me run this by you. I think it feels like it's not, making the impact we wanted to have right now. But should he choose to run again, that's when stuff like this is going to be very, very important. It's renewed ammunition for disclosure of his tax returns, Mm -hmm. something that it's easy to forget this far into his presidency he's never done. And I think at some point, you, you have to start thinking, if you have nothing to hide, just release them. Just release them. I don't know that his core supporters are going to be enormously impacted by this story. The White House's bet seems to be, let's call it a long, boring read by the New York Times that doesn't matter and just bank on people not going there. Mm -hmm. And maybe they won't. But this story 
could trigger a lot of things, given that it's saying this family, beginning with Donald Trump's father, has basically perpetrated a fraud on our government and probably owes millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, perhaps, in taxes. And I would imagine at some point, someone could keep digging into this in a way that that actually matters to the population. Because this isn't just hyperbole as everyone expects from him. It is just whole cloth lying about his resources. Bigger than that, though, cheating. Yeah. Right? This is this is cheating the United States government. And so if you voted for the president because you are upset about losing your position in a manufacturing plant, for example, how do you feel about someone who literally sits and eats on gold not paying taxes when you did? Mm-hmm. When you did, you didn't cheat and he did. Doesn't that matter at some point? Well, I mean, I feel like we had this sort of conversation a little bit during the election, and it was basically like, well, yeah, I did it. That's what smart, rich people do. And everybody's like, yeah, that's why we want him in there. He's a really smart, rich person who knows how to game the system. But, I mean, this isn't gaming the system. This is, like you said, this is cheating the system. I think it'll be interesting. I mean, he hasn't reacted yet to this in the Forbes reporting that he's worth much less money. His Donald Trump Jr. has, and basically was like, see, he's making all these sacrifices. Yeah, nice try. Um I don't think he's going – I mean, he he really takes it personally when people talk about his wealth. So I'm also just sort of intrigued by how he'll react, You're probably making it worse as his as is his way. That's, that's his favorite approach, make things worse. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it'll be important. The problem is if it does come up with re-election, then it's going to be – what does it matter? You know, I already have Trump supporters say this to me. What does it matter what he did in his private life before he became president? Now you can see all the good thing he's doing as president. That's what they're going to use to deflect all this, you know? I wonder if it will matter in a Republican primary. Yeah, if there is one, right. I wonder how many people who, like me, are still registered Republicans are going to come out in a Republican primary to take this shot. Because it's almost certain that John Kasich is going to run. I mean, does any is anybody out there confused about that? It seems like John Kasich is going to run against him in a primary. And something like this that is ju- that just directly goes to his character and judgment and on-the-record statements and information that's not been disclosed, I, I don't know how this doesn't motivate you if you weren't already. I mean – that's the problem. The sheer tonnage of all of this is so difficult. But but it certainly seems to me like we could put up a better nominee as a party, to say the absolute least. We shall see. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. 
That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked to me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. share with a real nominee running right now and share our conversation with Sarah Briggs Amico. We are delighted to be here with Sarah Riggs Amico, who is running for lieutenant governor in the state of Georgia. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. We would love to start by asking you about your decision to run for lieutenant governor. How did you choose that office? And, and tell us a little bit about process-wise running for lieutenant governor. So I chose this office very specifically and very intentionally. I wanted something that was statewide to avoid some of the unfortunate gerrymandering issues that we have here Mm -hmm. in Georgia. Um, I also wanted something that was an executive function. Uh, If you think about it, my professional background is very much suited to the role of lieutenant governor. As the executive chairman of a transportation and logistics company, My job is to get a wide variety of constituents from all different viewpoints rowing in the same direction. 
and it's not always easy. You know, I have about 2,000 union employees, Teamster and Machinist. I have um, over 1,500 non-union employees. I have a largely independent board of directors, institutional investors, and lenders. I also have Fortune 100 clients and a world-class management team. And sometimes those constituencies come at a problem from a different point of view. In fact, I would say almost always we start at different points of view. And as executive chairman, my job is to find the common ground that brings all of those groups together to solve a problem or to make progress. And that's very much what I'd like to see happen in the state Senate, where the Georgia lieutenant governor is the presiding officer. This race was also chosen um, by myself and my husband, my family, because we wanted a place that could have real and immediate impact on the lives of families all over Georgia like ours. One of the things that concerns me most is that our state legislature is so polarized and that it's utterly without balance between the two parties. And I think as a result, we've seen a lot of dysfunctional governance outcomes. Um, For example, there were four different bills that went through the state legislature this year that included language that would have enabled our EMCs who brought electricity to rural communities before that was a profitable model for private enterprise, it would have enabled them to do the same thing for rural broadband. Um, Many people don't realize we still have 626,000 Georgians without high-speed internet access. And the final bill went to the state Senate. It had passed both houses after crossover day, had gone through both houses with overwhelming bipartisan majorities. And it was actually the sitting lieutenant governor who refused to bring it to the floor for a vote. It timed out. And in Georgia, that means next year we have to start over solving the same problem Mm. and that those same families go without internet. And think about it. It's hard to be competitive as a student when you don't have access to the 21st century economy or knowledge or the internet. Um, It is harder to start a business for sure. Um, It's harder to be competitive in the broader economy. Um, And it's certainly hard to substitute some of the gaps in our rural communities in particular in healthcare access with telemedicine if you can't get online. There's no tele and telemedicine. So this is a role that I think a lot of times is really underestimated, but it is absolutely critical in terms of how the state legislature prioritizes the issues that matter to Georgia families. Um, So we picked it specifically for those reasons. And I also wanted credibility. I wanted a place where we could go in and put points on the board, remind people what it feels like for your government to actually function, to solve the problems that families worry about, and to do it in a bipartisan manner. Well, how does the Georgia lieutenant governor's race work in Georgia? What's the process? So it's independently elected here in Georgia. Um, Every state or many states are different. Um, In our case, in fact, the last time a Democrat won the office of lieutenant governor in Georgia was Mark Taylor in 2002, so 16 years ago, and he actually found himself working under a Republican governor. So it's very possible to have split ticket government here. Um, But the idea is that these are independently elected offices. I will say in practice, however, I'm extremely encouraged by the combination of skill sets that the top of our ticket brings together. I think that includes Stacey Abrams running for governor. I think it certainly includes me. It includes John Barrow and Charlie Bailey for secretary of state and attorney general. It's a truly complementary set of backgrounds, approaches to problem solving, 
and skill sets. And I think that will make our ticket and each of us as individual candidates stronger. So while they're all independently elected, um, my hope is that voters look at this ticket and say, wow, you know, these are capable, caring, compassionate people, but they've got credible track records of actually getting stuff done. Speaking of those track records, I've been very interested as I've learned more about you and your campaign and how you've positioned yourself because you are a business leader. You have a history of, as you say on your website, fixing seemingly unfixable problems and really growing an organization by investing in its employees. And I'm interested in how you have brought that experience to the forefront without using the language of, I'm going to come in and run government like a business. And I would love to hear your thoughts on the intersection of those two things. Yeah, thank you so much. So I am a business owner. For those of your listeners who don't know, I finished my MBA at the Harvard Business School a little over 15 years ago. So I I realize I probably look young, but that's just lucky genetics. Um, I've actually been (laughs) a business executive for over 15 years. And in that time, I have saved and created thousands and thousands of jobs. Um, And for the last 10 years, I have had the incredible privilege and opportunity to be a part of a family business um, that was a big part of bringing back the American automotive industry. So in 2008, uh, my family bought a little car haul company. So if you've ever seen the double-decker trucks that move cars, Mm -hmm. uh, that's what we do. And we had 120 employees, and most of them were Teamster. It was right in the middle of the economic collapse. And people literally laughed at us for buying this business as the economy was sort of collapsing all around us. They said, you know, some things just aren't fixable, some problems just aren't solvable, and some jobs just aren't savable. And in my family, we just have never looked at the world that way. I was brought up to believe that with the right combination of hard work and good leadership, almost any problem you ever encounter will be solvable. And I certainly think that applies to all of the issues where I think there's room for improvement here in Georgia. I don't think we suffer from unsolvable problems. I think we suffer from leaders who are either unwilling or unable to solve them. Um, So in our case, we not only survived that first year, but about a year later, we had an opportunity to buy a company called Jack Cooper that was 10 times our size and also on the brink of collapse. And we have saved those businesses and several others we've uh, acquired along the way. And today, that original 120-person operation employs more than 3,500 people. Um, We're the largest company of our kind in North America. We're one of the largest women-owned businesses in the country, and I'm very proud that we did that at the same time that we really invested in our people. We pay for our employees' health insurance premiums. We've paid for parental leave for both men and women. We've experimented in our Kennesaw headquarters with on-site daycare for employees who are struggling with balancing work and life, especially with very young children. And so my point of view is that getting in and digging into these problems where so many others have given up or have failed before is actually a lot more fun and a lot more rewarding than doing the stuff that's easy. I'm a turnaround manager. So when somebody tells me, in fact, I actually had an elected official who I won't name, but tell me within the last 10 days, you know, they've tried to update the school funding formula before and it failed. And it was presented to me as though that's a legitimate excuse for not. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, 
great, you you got the first step out of the way, but you haven't succeeded yet, so we need to go back to the table. Um, and and I think in government sometimes we accept that the status quo is as good as it gets, but it's not. I mean, look at the numbers right now. Georgia is something, I think, 38th in the nation for public schools. We're 47th in access to health insurance, and we're dead last, 50 out of 50 states in maternal mortality rates in this country. I don't think that's good enough. I don't think it's good enough when you have 79 counties without an OBGYN or when you've lost seven rural hospitals in five years. And the worst thing that any leader who's in a position to be able to impact and change that status quo, the worst thing they can tell you is, we just can't fix it. Um, My response to anybody who feels that way is then step aside. Let those of us who know how to do that kind of work come in and help. Because I don't want us to be in the bottom half of all of these metrics around the nation. I think Georgia's better than that. I believe in better. And as lieutenant governor, it's going to be my plan to figure out how does Georgia get to be number one, not just as a place to do business, but how do we become the number one place to raise a family, the number one place to go to a doctor, the number one public education system, the lowest maternal mortality rate, not the highest in the country. And if you don't have leaders who are willing to set those bold visions for the future and say, hey, this is possible, let's get to work, I don't know what they're doing. I think they're wasting taxpayer dollars and I think they're wasting people's time. Um, by refusing to do the task at hand. So I'd like to go in and do exactly what we've done with my business. We started as a tremendous underdog. Um, Everybody thought we would fail. We were one of the smallest in our industry. And we set a very simple and ambitious goal. We're going to be number one, the biggest, the best at what we do. And we're going to build a company that can create prosperity for not just a few years, but for generations to come. That's exactly the same thing I will do as next lieutenant governor. So you have not always been a Democrat. That's my understanding. And you talk on your website very openly about how many people in your life are are Republicans and independents. And you want to be a leader for everybody. And we would love to hear more about that. Yeah, I do. Uh, first of all, that's true. I, I've been um, a Democrat. I've been an independent. I've been a Republican. You know, coming back to the Democratic Party really felt like coming home to me um, from a values perspective, actually. But what's funny is my political views in that time period really have not changed much. I've, mm. I have racked my brain to find any issue where I've significantly altered my point of view in the last 20 years. And it's hard. Um, I don't think my views have changed nearly as much as the parties have changed, number one. Um, but I talk, of course, openly about it. I, I don't think most Americans see themselves as uh, as a being who can be simply distilled into one of two carefully constructed partisan boxes. Um, most people find it hard to find any candidate where they agree with 100% of their ideas. And, you know, it's a simple truth But I think something we forget too often in politics, the goal of leadership is not always perfection. It's progress. You know, and sometimes we have to take the progress we can can get in that moment. Um, So for those of you who are listening and you feel like you're not super enthusiastic about maybe some of the candidates this year um, because they're not exactly what you wanted, um, I got to tell you, I think that's a pretty poor excuse for not voting. Or not voting all the way down the ballot. Of course, they're not perfect. They, you know, I haven't found anybody who has exactly the same views I do on everything. 
And so for me, I have changed parties. I don't actually think that's a huge deal um, because I think most people agree with bits and pieces of a whole bunch of different perspectives. And I also think, you know, the things that have changed my view of the world over the years are things I couldn't possibly have known 20 years ago. Um, becoming a mother, for example, broadens your perspective in ways that are almost inconceivable before you're a parent. Um, becoming the wife of an immigrant has definitely changed um, the, the compassion and deepened the empathy that I have for people, um, however they got to our shores. I, I've, I've always been somebody who's incredibly pro-immigration, but I feel it at a much more visceral and personal level now because my children are children of an immigrant father. And so, you know, it is interesting to me, I guess it's unusual to not be a lifelong partisan in one direction or another, but to me, it, it was a very natural transition. Um, I've always voted for the party or the candidate that I thought had the best character or that I thought would create the best economic environment in which we could create jobs. And I think right now the Democrats are the party of business. Uh, but not only that, they're the party of business with a conscience, with a heart. Um, people who understand that investing in people is the highest return on investment they're going to get. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. EarthBreeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. EarthBreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs, or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do 
do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. So you alluded to this earlier that you have taken that philosophy in your business of investing in people. And I think the reason I ask you about that run it like a business phrase is I think we bring that mindset to government sometimes, meaning let's cut everything. And I know that Stacey Abrams has talked about Medicaid expansion as a a huge priority. I'm wondering about translating that philosophy of investment to governance and, and kind of what's on your agenda. So a couple of things. Number one, business isn't a, um, isn't government, and government isn't a business. Um, but there are principles, certainly about budget management and fiscal responsibility, certainly um, about how to do the right thing and still be successful, and certainly in terms of best practices for driving results around key performance indicators or the metrics that we use to assess how we're doing as a state that can be applied. Um, In terms of Medicaid expansion, you know, this is a really interesting one as a I'm I'm an admitted public policy nerd uh, for over 20, almost 25 years now. I've studied American government and I always thought of it as a hobby. Um, It comes in very handy now that I'm running for office. Um, But as a policy person and as a business person, Medicaid expansion is probably one of the most disappointing narratives on the Republican side because they usually make one of two arguments. Um, The first argument says it's too expensive, we can't afford to expand Medicaid. That is just patently false. In fact, um, we know that it's false. Um, The Urban Institute, as recently as this spring, has told us that Medicaid expansion in Georgia um, would not only bring back $3 billion a year of taxpayer money from Georgians that Georgians have already paid to our federal government, it would bring that $3 billion right back to Georgia to take care of our own people. It would create 56,000 jobs. It would create $6.5 billion of economic impact. And on top of that, it would put a health insurance card in the pocket of almost half a million Georgians who currently fall into what we call the Medicaid coverage gap. You know, they make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to purchase insurance in the private markets. Um, so, you know, the net cost estimate for Medicaid expansion 
in Georgia right now is $136 million. I believe we're at about a 94% reimbursement rate from the federal government. That'll eventually taper down to 10% uh, 10 from Georgia and 90% from the federal government. But in in either case, um, it's $136 million next year to expand Medicaid net cost to Georgia. And it never goes higher, even at the 10% rate for our payment side, um, than a couple hundred million dollars, 200, 240 million dollars. So for that, call it $200 million, you get $3 billion in tax money that comes back to Georgia. You get $6.5 billion in economic activity, 56,000 jobs, and half a million people with health insurance who don't currently have it. And that means that those people aren't flooding our ERs when they're sicker and more expensive to treat, driving up the cost of care for everyone in Georgia, driving up the cost of procedures and hospitals that are pre-planned from people who are insured. So the idea that we can't afford it is a false narrative that is designed, in my opinion, by the GOP to make people scared of Medicaid expansion. And it's not true. Of course we can afford it. In fact, I'd, I'd make the argument we can't really afford not to. Um, the fact that these half a million people in the coverage gap don't have insurance doesn't mean they don't get sick. And it doesn't mean that their costs somehow evaporate from the economy or the system. Um, in fact, it means they just get redistributed in really dysfunctional ways that drive up the cost of care for everyone. Um, the second argument that we usually hear about Medicaid expansion is big government, right? Because there's there's no better boogeyman for the Republicans than big government. And this is one that is is truly strange for me. It is the opposite of big government. Medicaid expansion literally means your federal tax dollars as a Georgian that you have already paid, no new taxes, but your federal tax dollars you've paid to Washington leave big government in Washington and come back here to Georgia, uh, where we locally benefit from it. So yes, I favor Medicaid expansion. Um, I certainly think it's a compelling uh, economic argument. And in fact, in Georgia, the Republicans have pushed this dollar-for-dollar uh, dollar tax credit for people who want to donate to rural hospitals, right? Um, it's at a $60 million pool. And it doesn't reduce taxable income. It actually reduces tax burden. So every dollar of tax credit you get from this tax credit reduces your tax bill by that same amount. And it's a $60 million cap right now. So they're literally giving away $60 million to get $60 million to our rural healthcare systems. I mean, in the business world, that's a terrible return on investment. If I came to you ladies and said, I've got a great deal for you, I'm gonna give you $60 million, but you're gonna have to give me $60 million to get it. You would look at me like I was insane, and rightly so. And that's assuming there's no cost of administering these tax credits, which of course there is. And if there's an administrative cost, we're actually giving away more in that program then we're getting back in return into our rural hospitals. And I think it's, you know, it's a sad thing for them to go out and try to convince people that that's somehow better than paying $136 million and getting $3 billion in tax money back, 56,000 jobs, half a million people with insurance and $6.5 billion in economic impact. This is a no-brainer. It won't fix everything. Democrats have to understand this, right? This is not a silver bullet, but it is a great place to start. And once we've done that, and once we've fixed access to rural broadband and can expand the use of telemedicine, 
once we can look at the use of nurse practitioners being expanded, once we can look at incentives for healthcare providers to practice in our rural communities, um, there's going to be a lot of different angles we have to attack on this problem, but Medicaid expansion is absolutely necessary as a first step. So I have a question. I think that you are an amazing candidate. Listening to you, I love to listen to a policy wonk. I could listen all day long. You clearly know your stuff. You clearly um, have an amazing business background. You bring all that meat, all that really um, pragmatic, gritty facts and data to your answers. I think that's amazing. How are you navigating this new face of politics and, you know, it's particularly the national media's portrayal of Georgia's governor race, which is being portrayed as just the war of identity politics and all emotion and all nastiness. And I'm just wondering, like, what happens when you bring all this awesome um, policy talk? I mean, you're clearly very smart and very passionate about all these things. And I wonder how you're navigating um, the political environment right now that is not often driven by those things? You know, I am very, very fortunate. I grew up in the Ozarks in Southwest Missouri and in, in what a lot of the country is referred to um, pejoratively as the flyover states, um, what others have referred to as the Bible Belt. I had a chance to go to business school in Boston. Um, I had a chance to have a job that moved me for a couple of years to New York and a couple of years to Los Angeles. So I've lived on the coast. Um, I've lived in the Midwest in the Bible Belt, and now I'm in the Deep South with four generations of my family. And so I have been very fortunate to live some of those political red and blue divides that the talking heads in our media talk about so much. And I've lived it in a very personal way. I would say where I grew up, I was probably considered one of my more liberal friends. Um, I would say when I lived in New York um, after graduate school and when my job transferred me to California for a couple of years, I was probably the, you know, the resident Christian conservative, um, mm-hmm. all relative, right? And and because of that experience, because I have felt what it's like to not be whatever the neat box is that somebody wanted you to fit in politically, I have a lot of empathy for people who don't share my worldview, for people who don't share the same passion for the same candidates that I have. And I do my best to use the two ears and one mouth that God gave us in the correct proportions. So my approach has never been about identity politics. In fact, I'd say by that metric, if you looked on paper, I'm a Harvard MBA, suburban evangelical business owner who's read Atlas Shrugged. I'm a soccer mom. So I I probably wouldn't check the Democratic boxes. Because of that, I'm able to sit with people who don't agree with me on everything. And because of that, I think I'm going to be able to look not at identity politics, but at the politics of common sense, the politics of compassion, and the politics of, hey, once upon a time, we used to all be able to get along and still solve a problem together. And and Georgia doesn't need more division. Our country does not suffer from a lack of partisanship. What we need is leaders who remember what it feels like to solve a problem with folks who don't always agree with them. What we need Mm -hmm. is somebody who reminds us that that kind of celebration gives us a craving for more of it. Once Mm -hmm. on the board in that way, um, I think the voters will demand it of their representatives everywhere. So 
you know, I kind of, I love watching the gubernatorial race. I, I'm obviously a big Stacey Abrams fan. Uh, she's incredibly bright. Um, she's also a policy wonk. She's an experienced legislator. And I think she has the best interests of all Georgians in her heart. I've never met Mr. Kemp, so I, I can't speak to him one way or the other. But I'm quite fond of Stacey Abrams. And I think she wants to do the work. So I try to just run my own race and I try to be supportive, not just of Stacey, but of candidates from the top to bottom of the ballot. You know, I've been supporting Everton Blair for a board of education in Gwinnett. It is a majority minority school district, and he will be the first person of color ever to serve on that board. Wow. Um, he's phenomenal. Harvard, Stanford, educator, policy expertise. He's incredible. Um, I've been supporting dozens of House candidates and state Senate candidates, county commissioner candidates. Um, so I'm really, I'm not running, I don't want anybody to vote for me because I'm a woman. I don't want anybody to vote for me because I live in the suburbs or because of what I look like or the kind of church I go to. I want people to vote for the candidates they feel they're the most qualified and capable. And I think in the race to be Georgia's next lieutenant governor, that candidate is me. Tell people how they can find out more about you and get involved in your campaign. Thank you very much. Um, so we are easy to find and very easy to get a hold of and get involved with. Um, we have a website, sarahforgeorgia.com. That's www.sarah. The proper way to spell that name. Just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> S-A-R-A-H-F-O-R-G-E-O-R. G-I-A.com, SarahForGeorgia.com. We're on Twitter. I joined Twitter literally just for the campaign, but I'm having a lot of fun now on Twitter. Um, it's at Sarah Riggs Amico, and you can find us on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, which the millennials on my campaign team insisted I join. <laughs> so I'm at SRAmicoGA on Instagram. There literally no shortage of ways. If you go on our website, you can find latest news, you can find endorsements, you can find a few broad strokes about policy, and you can find a volunteer form. You can also find a way to contribute to the campaign. It's very expensive to run statewide. And so part of what I've had to get used to is asking people to chip in and help us get back up on TV for the general election and, and tell people our message. Um, the other thing I will say is you know, we do a lot of video content. So I try to film a lot of the speaking engagements I do in their entirety so people can watch. They can get a sense of who I am and how I approach problem solving. And um, I think it's I think it's good to see somebody who doesn't always talk like a politician. And so wow. I would encourage people to go on our Facebook page and, and look through some of the old videos. We have a lot of fun. We've done some great um, Facebook lives with other candidates. We've done one with Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax of Virginia. Um, we've got great content in there. So I hope people will check it out and, you know, send us an email. We're info at sarahforgeorgia.com. If you have questions or comments or suggestions, we're doing this the old fashioned way. We will respond and we'd love to hear from y'all. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I know our listeners are going to really appreciate your views. We have a, a set of people who love getting into the details of policy. So I'm thrilled that you took time to do this with us today. And all the best in your campaign. We'll check back in with you after November. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much. We always tell people, you know, three things. And number one, everyone who is an eligible voter this year is voting. All of you. Um, it doesn't matter whether or not you cast a ballot. If you don't vote, 
you're voting to say that the status quo, the 626,000 folks without internet, the 79 counties without an OBGYN or the 64 counties without a pediatrician, seven rural hospitals closed in five years, and the worst maternal mortality rate in the nation, or the $9.2 billion we've underfunded our public school system by in the last 10 years, not voting is a vote for all of those things. And if you get to the ballot box, you've got a chance to demand better um, from your government and from your representatives. And the second thing we tell folks is you have 33 days from today. So I guess it'll be probably 32 or 31 by the time this airs. But you've got a little over 30 days to do everything you can to support whichever candidates make you um, inspired. And don't wake up on November 7th with regrets. Don't wake up saying, I wish I had told my friends about this other candidate. I wish I'd given five more dollars to my local state rep candidate. I wish I'd texted five more people to remember to vote because there's no such thing as a do-over in politics. Um, this is it. We've got a little over 30 days to do everything so that on November 7th, we wake up with the headlines we want and with no regrets. Uh, and the third thing we say is be excited. I mean, we're so fortunate to live in a democracy where you have a voice. Amen to that. You, the citizen, get to determine the outcome and the kind of world we leave our kids. I think that's magnificent. Well, that is a perfect way to wrap up. Thank you again, Sarah. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. Thank you to Sarah Riggs Amico for her time. We are excited to come back on Tuesday with another interview with a woman who is running for office, Lindsay James in Iowa. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.